Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Dr. Phyllis Zagano, an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the church. Her award-winning books include Holy Saturday, An Argument for the Restoration of the Female Diaconate in the Catholic Church, Women in Catholicism, Gender, Communion, and Authority, Women Deacons, Essays with Answers, Women, Icons of Christ, and Women Religious, Women Deacons, Questions and Answers. Her newest books are Elizabeth Visits the Abbey, a novel for young people about a 12-year-old girl whose aunt, the abbess of a large abbey in Ireland, tells her about the history of women in the church. And Just Church, released in 2023, which reviews Catholic social teaching in relation to current and prospective ministry by women. And she edited the Liturgical Press Spirituality and History series. She belonged to the 2016-2018 Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women. Winner of two Fulbright Awards, she holds a research appointment at Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York. Clearly, she's contributing much to the conversation about women in the church. Dr. Phyllis Zagano, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Well, thank you. Thank you. So glad to meet you, Julia. I've been following your work for years and been really influenced by the contributions that you're making to the conversations about church reform and justice, equality, inclusion. I am interested, though, in hearing how you came to know your passion and find yourself in this space of scholarship, helping women to have more equality in the Catholic Church. Well, I think that's an interesting way to enter the discussion I'm from what they call the post-Vatican II generation, such as you are, but I'm a little older than you are, and I'm closer to the Second Vatican Council as its changes rippled across the world. When the Second Vatican Council opened, there was a great deal of excitement. You speak about women at the time, we're talking about just lay people, you know, Mm. the church was pray, pay and obey. Mm. And uh, now all of a sudden, lay people are able to do things, allowed to read in church, allowed to be extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist, are thought to have something in their heads about the way church needs to be managed and organized. So I remember working in the office of the uh, vice president at State University of New York at Stony Brook, where I was getting a PhD in basically religion and literature, writing about Gerard Manley Hopkins. But when I was working in the vice president's office, there was a big, thick book with the word diaconia on it. And uh, my vice president at the time, Patrick Healan, was a Jesuit. And I said, this word is banging around in my head. What does it mean, mm. diaconia? And he said, it means service. And he began to talk to me about the history of women deacons in the church. These are the days when you didn't have refrigerators in the office. So I had my little sandwich on the ledge, kind of a balcony outside Dr. Healan's office, and I would have to pass his office every day to get my sandwich. One day I stopped in on my way to get the sandwich and said, you know, tell me more about women deacons. And so Patrick Healan, priest of the Society of Jesus with two PhDs, explained to me that the church had had women in the diaconate, and really there was no reason they couldn't have them again. 
And he began me on that on that study. And I was finishing the doctorate, writing the dissertation, and actually began to take courses at the local seminary. Mm. I don't know how it was with your formation, but when I went to seminary, you're interviewed by about 38 people. They kept saying, why are you here? And I said, well, I want to study to be a deacon. And they said, well, you're too smart to be a deacon. We'll put you in the priest program. I said, whatever. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm just here to study. <laughs> right. Just, just for context, do you mind me asking what year this was? It was 1978. There were three of us, um, myself and three fellows of a class of about 38, who were not what they call lifers, mm-hmm. men who had not gone to college seminary. They had gone to college somewhere else. And so myself and these three fellows who were not lifers were the, the outliers, and we became a little study group. And uh, they kept me apprised of what was going on in the seminary. So one day, one of them called me and said, the Apostolic Nuncio is coming, House Cassock and Sash. I said, uh, <laughs> I don't have House Cassock and Sash. They yeah, said, oh, just and, come. And for our listeners that don't know what Apostolic Nuncio means or House Cassock and Sash, I think we need some definitions. <laughs> well, the Apostolic Nuncio is an interesting individual. He's essentially the ambassador of the Holy See to the United States. Uh-huh. And House Cassock and Sash means a cassock with a sash. I mean, okay. you know, uh, that's all it means. I wore a, a yellow pantsuit, and I was there with all the fellas in their house cassock and sash. There was a mass, and then there was lunch, and the fellas put me on the end of a row in the refectory so that when the bishop and the nuncio walked past, they well, they couldn't miss me anyway, uh, but they, they would see <laughs> me. And the bishop, Jean McGann, had played basketball with my father in high school. Oh. And so he knew me. Uh-huh. And as he walked past, he said, Phyllis, what are you doing here? I said, I'm in studies. <laughs> <laughs> and then shortly after that, a young priest came to me at the table where I was trying to eat my lunch. We were all trying to figure out if I was going to be arrested or what. Mm-hmm. And the young priest said, the nuncio would like to see you. <laughs> and I said, fine. He interviewed me for 20 minutes about my interest and my vocation mm. to the diaconate. At the end, he said, you must continue. Uh, don't quit. Uh, you must continue your work and you must continue to study to be a deacon. So I thought that was a, kind of a good sign. Yeah. I kept studying and ended up teaching for a, a few years at Fordham University, where I studied philosophy. And then I continued and studied theology at St. John's University. Uh, I, I worked at Fordham for a few years and then left there and worked as a researcher for John Cardinal O'Connor. A sister who worked for him came uh, over to see me. She was the director of vocations, and she said, the vicar general of the military archdiocese wanted to know how to get women chaplains in the military. I said, well, tell him to ordain us. And <laughs> so she came back. She said, he wants a longer answer. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I said, so I wrote this paper giving the equivalence between Navy rank and structure. Cardinal O'Connor was retired Rear Admiral, U.S. Navy, Chief of Chaplains. Mm. I, at the time, was a reserve naval officer. Mm. And I gave the the equivalent uh, rank structure for officers, arguing that while in the military, to be an officer chaplain, you have to be a priest. The military does not have what's called a warrant grade, which is a specialist grade, uh, in between the enlisted ratings and the officer ranks. And warrants are commissioned officers. But I suggested that deacons could be warrant officers in the chaplain's corps. So I wrote this huge paper with arrows and all that stuff. And uh, 
the question was, please go meet the auxiliary bishop of military ordinary at John O'Connor. So I went over and the fight was on. Mm. About four or five years later, I found out that he had written an exactly same paper when he was the chief of chaplains, U.S. Navy. <laughs> so we got on very well. And uh, then when I left Fordham, he hired me and I was his researcher. He said, if you write a good book about women deacons, I'll get it to the Pope. And I said, okay. So he helped me outline Holy Saturday, an argument for the restoration of the female diaconate in the Catholic Church. It was printed on Holy Saturday in the year 2000, Mm. just before Cardinal O'Connor died. That interest continued. And uh, and so I've been writing a lot lot more since then. So you've been on this journey of scholarship, relationship, and creativity, but I'm really hearing a lot about faithfulness and perseverance. Along this journey, what have you discovered about the relationship between call and choice? It sounds like you felt very called to the diaconate during that time when you had that lunch with the sandwich. That call has never gone away. Your point is extremely important, the difference between choice and call. Really, any vocation is the call of the church. And I have said many times, if the church needs women deacons, women ordained as deacons, it will not be denied. But the fact is, it's not something you sit in your study and invent for yourself. It's something that you are called to, not only in prayer, but also by the people around you, the people who examine you. And I refer back to the 38 people who examined me when I was going to seminary. And since then, I mean, Mm. various formative experiences I've had. I've made the exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, the 30 days twice. And you just keep talking in both private and public fora. One of the questions I get even now, it's very interesting, and mostly from men and mostly from priests, is why do you stay and how can you stand it? Hmm. And uh, it's not about me needing to be ordained. I think it's more important for me to be who I am. I mean, I listen to people, whether I'm ordained or not. You know, you try to help people whether you're ordained or not. You do your work whether you're ordained or not. But the question, why do you stay and how can you stand it? To me, it's not only formative, it's also encouraging. Mm. I was in Mass one day, and a woman who is interested in the topic of women ordained as deacons, she said, oh, you give me such comfort to see you at Mass that you're still going. I was like, well, yeah. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. And I think part of it is sometimes I look at what happens in our church in terms of what the hierarchy and priests say and do and things. I'm like, oh, guys. There was uh, some comments made about me not too long ago by uh, priests, and some people were very upset. I said, It's okay. I went to co ed eighth grade. I get it. (laughs) 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 Zing. (laughs) There's big problems. Formation for ministry involves spiritual, human, intellectual, and pastoral Mm. formation. And I think some of those pillars are not so well uh, shored up in some Mm -hmm. seminaries. And I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, There's a great deal of discussion about seminary formation. Yeah, But I think at at the root of it, if we're talking about how a woman can manage in the church, you really simply have to have the attitude, come on, boys, 
know. <laughs> Let's go. Right. Let's go. It's okay. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it sounds like you really have to practice the forgiveness that Jesus has modeled and the mercy, right? We continue to pour it out. And the other thing that I'm reminded of is how years ago, early on in my formation with my community of sisters, one of the elder sisters in my community was explaining to me that if you get up from the table and you leave the table, then you lose your influence. Because I was trying to make sense of like, how do you end up having conversations with all these people that are trying to make you into enemies, but you just seem to stay with them and you keep listening and you keep dialoguing and you keep learning. And there's an element of fidelity in that posture. And she's like, well, yeah, (laughs) stay at the table. That's what Jesus taught us to do. (laughs) And that's a theme through the gospels over and over. Jesus at the table, at the table, at the table. Well, it's true. But you know what, Julia, the working document for the ongoing synod on synodality says enlarge the space of your tent. And that is, I think, a very interesting image because it's not only do you have to let people in the tent, you've got to make it bigger so more people can come in. And that, I think, is what the church is struggling with worldwide in terms of how this discernment process is working, can work, will work, should work. Yes, you have to stay at the table. You have to listen to discussion that you might find unworthy. It's not helpful to reduce yourself to name-calling, which I've been subject to certainly throughout my academic career, but to simply try to understand in the common parlance, the thing would be where the other one is coming from, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's it's lack of charity. Sometimes it's lack of information. Mm-hmm. Some of the uh, information that I read, whether it criticizes me directly or indirectly, I kind of can't answer directly. Mm-hmm. You know, I can just listen to it because it's so bad, <laughs> that, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, and you feel sorry for people who are so misinformed. So the only thing I can do is keep publishing. What you're describing there is reminding me of how it's biblical. The prophetic voice is silenced and worse. There's the attacks and struggles, and there's other people that are eager to hear it and they'll uplift it and give you the biggest megaphone they can. So so both things are happening, which causes me to be curious about what you would have to say for all of us Christians or people on the fringes of faith in general, what are you learning about how to dance with power and know our own power as we're advocating for justice for the common good? Well, again, who is holding the power? No one has power unless you give it to them. Now, obviously, in certain situations, one must accede to power. I can't decide that I'm going to fly to Europe without a passport. However, it's it's not a question, I think, of objecting to power if you're talking about so-called power in the church. It's rather cooperating with it, with the understanding that we're all on the same journey, that we are trying to assuage our fears of death. We're trying to live good lives, Christian lives or otherwise religious lives. And we're all trying to just get along with our situations, which does not mean going along to get along, but rather maintaining one's boundaries intellectually and personally and speaking when necessary, but not speaking when not necessary. And I think that that's what a lot of people don't 
don't remember mm. is that lots of times it's not necessary to say anything. Mm. We have a lot of people who like to straighten Venetian blinds out there. You know, they got to fix everything. <laughs> there are others who get very, very nervous if the Venetian blinds are not straight. These are the people in, analogously who need to make sure every law is observed. We just had a, a, a gospel recently about the, the point of not getting crazy about law. That law is very important. Law is uh, guidelines. Law is instructive. But one need not become, as I said earlier, crazy about law because laws can be changed. In my business, the only barrier, and it's a big barrier, to the restoration of women to the female diaconate is Book 6 of the Code of Canon Law, which says that you can't ordain a woman, anything. But when that book was presented about a year ago, the bishop presenting it said, well, if the teaching changes, uh, you know, the law will change. Well, uh, here's a newsflash. There's no teaching <laughs> to change. <laughs> um, it's really not necessary to change this teaching. It's it's necessary to recover it because women deacons kind of died out around the 12th century when the whole diaconate died out because basically the priests in Rome were annoyed that the new bishop was being elected from among the deacons and not from among the priests. We have 37 deacons who were elected bishop of Rome, 36 of whom were never ordained as priests. So, mm. so the diaconate really got quashed and it got cemented into what's called the cursus honorum, the course of honor. You couldn't get ordained a deacon unless you were going to be ordained a priest. Mm. I'm sure I've read this before, but review my history. <laughs> so after Vatican II, the diaconate was reintroduced. Why weren't women deacons introduced at that time? The diaconate was uh, reinstated as a permanent vocation following the Second Vatican Council. The discussion about women in the diaconate began to percolate around that time. But what was happening coincidentally was that the Anglicans were ordaining, uh, in 1973, I think, 13 women were illegally ordained in Philadelphia as uh, Episcopal priests. So the, the woman-priest discussion kind of t uh, sucked the air out of the oh. uh, woman-deacons uh, discussion. That trajectory led to inter in 1976, and then Ordinatio Sacerdotalis in 1994. So, Which um, in these documents are saying... No women priests, no. but they have nothing to do with the diaconate. Yeah, yeah. And there's never been any kind of um, official teaching against women deacons. Yeah. In 2019, the Synod for the Amazon actually wanted to request women in the diaconate. It still circles around. And I was told many years ago, I want to say almost 30 years ago, by the highest placed woman in the Vatican, that they can't say no. They simply don't want to say yes. There's no justification for saying no to women deacons. There mm -hmm. is an historical theological argument. There is anthropological uh, understanding. Thomas Aquinas says that in a sacrament, the sign must naturally resemble what it symbolizes or what it, what it signifies. So if we're talking about the deacon being in persona Christi Servi in the person of Christ, the servant, well, last time I looked, my nature was human, just like Christ's. Isn't that what discipleship is? It's like, we're all here to serve as Christ served and to imitate sure. and follow Christ. Yeah. One of the things that I'm fascinated with as you outline all this history is I'm hearing something about the way that 
the spirit is just not giving up. It keeps stirring globally. There's this thing that keeps murmuring around. And then there's this resistance. One of my roles as a sister is I'm the vocation minister for my community of sisters. And so I meet with women who are trying to understand what they're really called to in their life, what their vocation is, and whether they're really meant to be a sister or not. One of the things I find myself telling them regularly is if you can't stop thinking about it, then you're probably supposed to pay attention to it, right? It seems to me that that's what's been happening for 2,000 years since throughout church history is the Spirit has been working and bubbling this desire in hearts and minds, in scholarship, but in the grassroots. I mean, yeah, the Synod on the Amazon, I think, is a real evidence of that. The people there definitely said, yeah, we want women deacons. That would be really helpful. They're already doing the church anyway. Let's make it official now, please. There's this real movement happening that makes sense. And from my point of view, it also makes sense that there's resistance, right? Because Again, back to what I understand about energy and change and prophetic movements, there's a wrestling that needs to happen for the next thing to unfold to help us come to a place of clarity together. I don't know if that matches your understanding and experience, but that's what's coming to mind as I listen to you. That's a beautiful example. And in terms of you can't stop thinking about it, I'm doing a study right now of the documents as published by the various dioceses in the United States, and almost all of them talk about women in the church, and only two that I've found have this false notion that, interestingly, that both married priests and women deacons are doctrinally forbidden. That's two of 178 <laughs> dioceses. And the other 176, I mean, as exemplified by Cardinal McElroy's article in America Magazine, there's no doctrinal teaching against women in the diaconate. And I find it keeps coming up. So if, it, if they can't stop thinking about it, to use your words, then it needs to be an understanding that the Spirit is saying something in our churches. And it's not just our Latin Catholic Church. It's the Orthodox churches in the United States and elsewhere. And it is the the Eastern Catholic churches. You know, we have 23 Eastern Catholic churches. So as this discussion reverberates worldwide, I think we're going to find that uh, it truly is the voice of the Spirit. If the world can't stop talking about this and thinking about it, then it should be an invitation to the church to restore women to ordained ministry. Why can't women have the opportunity to have the blessing of an ordained minister who has faculties and is incarnated in a diocese? Why can't the interest and the blessing of the bishop flow through her to the woman to whom she is ministered? And there are practical reasons for it, too, you know. But I'm still curious about how you understand faith. What is faith? And how does faith influence you and your persistence in your scholarship? your devotion. You continue to show up to church, even though the church never ordained you a deacon. Well, faith is the evidence of things longed for, I think. We, we, are, um, we are all on a journey. We are all hopeful and hope-filled uh, that there is something else. And the something else is evidenced in my life by the, the everyday Christ that I meet. You see God's touch in so many ways that you either believe or you want to believe. If people have trouble 
with faith, then the request needs to be, please help me believe. And that in and of itself, if you have the faith to know that you can ask God and admit the tragedy of your fears to God, then that is faith. I think sometimes we're concerned or we get convinced that it's all about me and Jesus and I'm supposed to sit in the corner and get gooey, nice feelings. Well, that's okay, but it's not to me what it is only about. And I think we need to recognize that we are part of the larger project of bringing the world to an understanding of how Christ can act and how Christ is in the world. So faith, I think, as it is expressed both in hope and in charity, and the cardinal virtues, therefore, would be the pillars upon which my life would stand. What I'm hearing there is something that's helpful to me about faith being something about intention and relation. And it's not necessarily about attitude or posture or even what makes sense in our minds. (laughs) And it reminds me that I was recently at a meeting and we were doing one of those team building exercises, buzz around the room. And I was asked to uh, stand under the type of identity that gave me the most joy. And then later the identity that I struggled with the most. And for both, it was my religious identity. And then we were asked to talk about it. And I found myself admitting that I experienced so much joy and consolation, and I struggle with my commitment to being a Catholic woman religious as well. And some days I show up out of habit because I'm committed to it, because I took a vow to this. And if I'm honest with myself, I don't know what I believe a lot of the time. <laughs> I just know it's where I belong and where I'm meant to be. And it helps me to be my truest self. And I think I'm learning that that's faith too. Faith is about belonging and recognizing what helps a person to become truest to who they are. It's not necessarily an intellectual exercise. It doesn't always come through reason. Faith-seeking understanding, as Anselm would say, more than faith and reason. Mm. But I think if anyone is waiting for certainty, one will never get out of bed. I have a friend, a Carmelite sister, who is so joyful. And I remember years ago, I was like, you know, I think it'd be an interesting thing to just decide to be joyful. (laughs) And, you know, one need not be a grump. I think that one needs to get out of bed and decide to be joyful and look at the other person because the other person may be struggling with faith or with life or with bunions or you don't know. (laughs) Right, right. You don't know. And you just um, need to be, I like the term goofy. But well, you know, yeah, I'll say goofy. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah, kind of sometimes silly yeah, or, you know, yeah, just to, yeah. be, to be happy without being disrespectful. Mm. Somebody told me once you need to compliment uh, the first three people you see in the morning. Mm. You know, hey, you're looking great. Your hair's good. Oh, what a great jacket. And that kind of makes you feel better, too. Mm. I find myself at communion, depending on where I'm sitting, praying for the people as they go up, because they are encouraging me. They have something else to do as well. They may have a kid on their shoulder, or they may be on a cane. Or So faith, uh, I think, cannot be disconnected from hope, uh, but definitely cannot be disconnected from charity. And the deacon, as you know, is ordained to the word Uh, the liturgy and charity. That is the job of the the deacon. Right. uh, And every baptized Christian or every 
child of God in general. (laughs) So I want to hear a little bit about your latest book before we wind up sharing about Just Church and how you're hoping this could influence parishes and faith sharing groups and help people to have conversations about social teaching and synodality. Right. Uh, Remove influence and just include converse. Okay. So you just want people to have the conversations. I think folks need to have the conversation to understand. My question is, how does the church value women? whether it does or will it ever, you know, and if we look, it's a three-part book, Catholic Social Teaching, with a little history with an emphasis on what it says about women, and then uh, synodality, the question of what is synodality, how how have recent synods worked, and then problem of women, and, and I review some of the questions about women. I think the title, you have to get it, is Just Church, you know, like, get it? Just Church. Like, simply Church, but a just church. I get it. We need to nail down justice into action. Mm. Uh, And to me, there's a little bit too much talking. Um, (laughs) What I have at the beginning, uh, and you can see my roots in some of my degrees in English, I have the Yeats poem, The Second Coming. Mm. It says, what rough beast, it's our come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. The point of having that as an epigraph is the center cannot hold. And and that's what I fear. And that's why I think people need to talk about justice in the church uh, in, in various ways to understand its history, to understand the history of Catholic social teaching. It's amazing. We talk about economics. And really, people say it only began in like 1891 with Rerum Novarum, meaning new things. Well, what was going on in 1891? You had incredible um problems in in the developing world in Victorian era. Read read Dickens to find out what it was like then. And uh, if you look at the criticism of Leo XIII at the time, those criticisms are being levied today by Pope Francis in Africa. The same thing is happening. People are just cogs in an industrialized world. People can't eat. They have nothing to eat. They have no place to sleep. They have no government structure. They don't even have roads in front of their houses. They may or may not need them. So to understand Catholic social teaching and then understand how synodality in the past 10 years, really with Pope Francis, has developed the notion of understanding how modernity is damaging the planet and is damaging individuals. You think of Laudato Si. And then, of course, the question of women, what can be done? How can it be done? My big question is, you know, Julia, uh, when a woman is hired by the church, is she hired? You know, Mm -hmm. I I have some statistics in the book about how women are not really terribly well paid or well hired by the church. You know, the housekeeper is often given 10 hours a week. Women are now increasingly moved into administrative jobs by Pope Francis. And I have a whole list of women who are working in courier offices. But administration is not being ordained. Management is not ministry. Mm. And I think the the end of the story is if the church is going to apply its social teaching and its teaching of Christianity to the world, it needs to say women are made in the image and likeness of God. I was told by an official of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that women cannot be ordained because women cannot image Christ. And I explained that that was heretical, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's the opposite of what I taught my ninth graders when I was a teacher. (laughs) Exactly. But but here's a newsflash. He was an official of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. 
So as long as the Vatican has that attitude and transmits that attitude to the world, as long as the church is saying that women can't image Christ, that women are not made the image and likeness of God, how are you going to tell some husband he can't beat his wife? How are you going to tell some husband he can't rape his wife? How are you going to tell some uh, fella that he, he needs to get married if he made a baby? You know, that, that to me is the bottom line here. So in the book, Just Church, I'm drawing the line between Catholic social teaching and the teaching of the gospel. Well, the Catholic social teaching is really the explication of the gospel in the world. And the notion of synodality, you know, the commission I was on mm. was the first commission in the history of the church that was 50% female. Two thousand yeah. years. Goodness I mean, gracious! On. Right, and then of course the questions about women. So thanks for mentioning the book. They have it in Kindle, and it's a print on demand, so your listeners in Australia can get it. Yeah, and, there you uh, go. <laughs> Shout out to my friends in Singapore. <laughs> Thank you so much. It sounds like a book that I would have loved to have read back in college when I was falling in love with the Catholic Church and realizing the reason I'm Catholic is because of Catholic social teaching, and. That's what keeps me here because I believe in the dignity of every person and I want it to be honored all the time. <laughs> in every way. Amen. <laughs> so well, you go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> you go, girl, too. <laughs> Thanks so much, Phyllis, for this conversation. There's just two more questions. I would love to hear you talk about what's messy about being a member of the church, a woman in the church, being faithful, uh, being on this path of discipleship. Well, what's messy about being a woman in the church is the fact that uh, some fellas, when they are ordained, they get terribly condescending to women. They they talk to you like you're a fifth grader. And that to me is, it's really un, un, unfortunate. I think that would be the main thing that I would say in we answer heard, to your question. We heard each other. Yeah. We yeah, heard we each do. other. We yeah. do. We do. I kind of laugh at these fellas, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the human formation of some fellas in seminaries is just terrible. It has to be removed from the clerical case. And and this could happen with women as well. The supercilious church lady could be just as bad. I, I think that I may know more than you, but I am not more than you. Mm. And the fact that I am not the same, but equal to you needs for you to treat me and for me to treat you with ultimate respect because I need to see Christ in you. Sure is messy, but we're it in this together. <laughs> we are all in this together. And yeah. so, and then, you know, there are the others, all the scandals about sex and money. That That's heartbreaking. It really is. Bad liturgies, bad preaching, everything that one can criticize. But I think it's more useful to look at what can be positive about our experience of church. You know, uh, Peter was not the sharpest tack on the board, and uh, Jesus had a crew of guys who, I mean, who have got a bunch of basically teenage guys uh, running around trying to convince the world that this fellow is the Messiah and he's got good ideas. So I don't think it's the actual people that, that matter that much. I think it's the message. Mm. And so what's messy in the messy Jesus business is that people, I think, too often focus on the mess. And that is what it's about. It's not about the process. It's not about the law. It's not about who gets to wear what or do what or say what. It's about Jesus. And until 
And unless individuals are happy with that in their hearts, they'll be terribly, terribly disappointed, no matter what church they go to, whether it's uh, Catholic or Lutheran or Anglican or something else. Uh, one, one needs to be looking for Christ in the world, not for the mistakes that the world makes about Christ. Amen. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> oh, Phyllis, thank you so much for all your time. Please tell me how our listeners can buy all your books and follow your work and come to all your preaching events. <laughs> well, that's sweet. Thank you very much. March 17th, I'll be at uh, Davenport, Iowa at St. Ambrose University. Mm-hmm. March 31st, I'll be at Cambridge University in England. And April 14th, I'll be at Trinity College in Dublin. Wow. My bishop actually asked me not long ago, do you get up at five o'clock in the morning to write? I said, no, I get up at five o'clock in the morning to pray. The energy that that we need is the energy that we're given, and, and I'll just uh, keep on doing it. My books are, some of them are print on demand, actually, so folks around the world can get Elizabeth Visits the Abbey, which is a very sweet book. I think Just Church is print on demand. I'm not sure. But all of my books are on Amazon, and the Paulus books that we spoke about are at uh, paulispress.com. You and I should have another discussion someday about women religious, women deacons, which is about the questions that general superiors asked me about what would happen if a woman religious became a deacon. And also on my webpage. Uh Uh, A lot of my academic and other articles are linked to my webpage. Uh, which is like Phyllis Sagano at Hofstra or something like that. You know, you just Google okay. my name. And then I have a, a nationally syndicated column with the Religion News Service once a month, which I have to write soon. So, okay. <laughs> so I'm glad there to you meet go. you, dear. Yeah. And we'll talk again. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Peace. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamscans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.